This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, I continue my introduction to Australia. With me is Lindsay Fitzclarence, who has just published the book, The Dirty Life of Mining in Australia, a travel log. In it, Lindsay goes on an educational journey into the history, culture, and political economy of an industry that plays an outsized role in the Australian imaginary. Originally, a lot of people attracted because of the search for gold and the finding of gold, which was effectively to underwrite the British economy in the 19th century during a time with a volatility in particularly the European trading and uh, sort of uh, sub-economies, I suppose, of, of Europe. Lindsay Fitzclarence is an honorary professor at Deakin University. His book, The Dirty Life of Mining in Australia, was published last week. Lindsay Fitzclarence, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. So congratulations on your new book. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read a snippet of it, and it's really fantastic. And as a newcomer to Australia, in a sense, it's a really great introduction to me, to the country, to the land, to the political economy. And so I'm really happy to have you on to sort of unpack some of the big themes in this book. So can you just give me sort of a sense of the importance of the mining industry in Australia? Okay, it's a major part of the political economy in terms of bottom line dollars in relatively recent years. Almost 300 billion in in export earnings. Over 200,000 jobs, over 200,000 in royalty payments to the government. So it's a a significant component in terms of the the economy, in terms of the uh, actual physical economy of the country. But beyond that, it's an ideological element as well. It's got a very interesting history. Originally, a lot of people attracted because of the search for gold and the finding of gold, which was effectively to underwrite the British economy in the 19th century during a time with a volatility in particularly the European trading and uh, sort of uh, sub-economies, I suppose, of, of Europe, um, with the American, the United States economy growing at a, a very great rate, being a disruptor to the European hegemony. From there, that's through that early phase of the, I suppose, the colonial development of Australia. But once, uh, after 1901 and a federated independent country, mining became increasingly important in terms of underwriting Australia's own growing industrial economy. So, for example, then fueling the new industries, coal, the need for coal became very important and it was in a number of key places. Newcastle, for example, had really um, very rich black coal and and you you have the whole industry of Newcastle and uh, the associated uh, city to the south, Wollongong, um, are examples. So so as a sort of a a fuel, a, a critical element of Australia's developing industrial independence. Mining then sort of took a shift, became much more internalised and um, important internally in terms of the the growth of the economy. And I suppose then it became important, particularly with the the growth of the iron ore sector, it became important in fuelling other economies internationally. So Australia started to develop its international trade in the iron ore the production of iron ore or the export of iron ore 
sort of fueled, you know, added to the Australian economy externally then as well. And that's gone through a number of iterations. And we're up to stage now where lithium, as a critical element, as a critical mineral, has come on the scene. It has got extensive resources in lithium. I think that will be a new boom. Increasingly, in, in the whole post or attempt to sort of deal with climate change and um, and flooding of spewing of uh, atmospheric damage, I suppose, a chance to sort of go globally green, lithium will be a key element. But Australia's got um, a host of other critical minerals as well. So uh, we're right on the edge of a, of a new mining boom, in my opinion. It's quite interesting to hear that longer view of the history of mine in the country, from gold to coal to iron ore to lithium and, and potentially some of these other minerals in the sort of the booming of as countries transition to green economies. But at the same time, it's also interesting to, to see how it's connected to colonialism was then sort of, as you said, internalized and was really about sort of national development and now has sort of been or since iron ore really been connected to sort of the global economy and sort of other countries needing the iron ore to fuel the boom. So I guess, you know, all these different mines in Australia, who owns them? You know, are these nationalized mines or are they privately owned? No, they're certainly not nationalised. Um, the two major players in this country, BHP Billiton, which uh, had its origins in the Broken Hill. It had its origins in a sense at Broken Hill in uh, New South Wales, but it was actually underwritten and funded from uh, finance out of Britain. And that's still pretty much the same. BHP was Billiton, it's now just BHP, is based essentially in Britain. And Rio Tinto is the same, the other major player. And it's also located in Europe. I think it's it's, um, I'm right in saying it's uh, based in England as well, United Kingdom as well. They're the two major players. Um, there are other sort of uh, ones, but then they're not as powerful. And, and BHP Billiton has mines you know, many different places, actually. These are big names that I think are probably common across the world. A lot of people probably invest in them or they, they have operations all over the world. I think Rio Tinto is one of the most you know wealthy corporations in the world, isn't it? But your focus, of course, is not necessarily just these mines as being sort of players in the Australian economy. You're interested in these other aspects when you were looking at mining in Australia. And you sort of start this story, I guess to say close to home. Uh, in 2014, there was a wildfire that reached a coal mine in Morwell, Victoria, which is, I think, where you're from or you've lived there before. Can you tell us what happened in that fire? You know, how that sort of sparked your interest in thinking about mines as a site of research? Okay, it was a catalyst. You're, you're correct. Morwell is uh, located in an area called the Latrobe Valley. It's a coal mining area. It's brown coal, not the better quality black coal. It's brown coal. But it was very important in terms of the state of Victoria. It was the source of electric power, fuel the, uh, the power stations, firstly in a place called Yalorn, and then in the town where I grew up, spent the first 17 years in Morwell. It was the second site for development, a brown coal mine there. And uh, originally, these uh, both this industrial complex, uh, Yalorn first, and they were controlled by what was called the State Electricity Commission of Victoria, the SECV, a, a state-owned instrumentality. Oh, well, no, let me say a little bit about that. So in a way, uh, the people who worked in those towns were public servants. They were working as members of the extended state bureaucracy, extended state workforce. But when privatisation kicked in in the 2000 and teens, the government sold it off 
sold these um, instrumentalities off and uh, the mines and the power complexes became privatised. And the moment then they became parts of the open market, open market logics kicked in and you've got managers and, um, and bureaucrats who are looking at the bottom line of making profit and looking all of the time for cost-saving approaches. What happened as part of that process was that a watering system within the mine got closed down. It's like the older parts of the um, the Morwell mine that had been part of a complex of um, water sprays to keep the mine, uh, to keep the, the, um, the surface coal, I suppose, less volatile, closed down, which is a, um, a bureaucratic blunder. It's an area that has been subject to uh, wildfires probably forever, and certainly in colonial times. There have been wildfires that have gone, just raced through the whole area, you know, lives lost, etc., etc. And in Inevitably, in heating up conditions and um, extreme fire danger, it only takes one you know, one spark and it's away. And that's what happened in 2014 in sort of the volatile climate conditions. A fire started and it, it became embedded within the coal face and was burning into the face, um, burning deep, and it couldn't, it just couldn't be contained in the way that uh, surface fires could be. It was burning into the ground and it was just pewing out toxic gases over the town. So what happens? Like, what do you do when a coal mine is on fire? Well, under those circumstances, because of the toxic fumes that were going uh, spewing out over the town, firstly, they moved vulnerable people out, older people and, and young kids. I don't know how those, do, yeah, once again, they're sort of bureaucratic decisions and the state then becomes involved because they're sort of managing a, as an emergency management system. But this went on, it was 45 days before they could get this under control. And in that time, a lot of people had been moved away and uh, people were becoming ill. And the longer-term effects are probably still being felt by a lot of people. There were quite a few people who couldn't move, who didn't have the capacity to move anywhere. And, um, you know, there was a lot of subsequent illness as a result of that. I had spent the first 17 years of my life living in this place and um, I had totally normalised the ebbing and flowing of life in a, in a mining community. But I was there when it was owned as a state instrumentality, not when it was privatised. So I went back when it had been under the jurisdiction of sort of uh, companies that were, um, well, it, ultimately it was the Morwell uh, mine was taken over by a French company. So you've got bureaucrats in France who probably wouldn't spend a great deal of time thinking about the life of the 13,000, 14,000 people living in a little you know place on the other side of the globe. What they were concerned about, of course, is the profit-making capacity of the mine, but they were also dealing with increasing global attention to clean green energy and the sort of vilification of um, sort of the burning of, of fossil fuels. So you had a company that was wanting to stay vi- seen to be viable and and being a good global corporate citizen player. So they went through a process of of deciding they were getting out of, um, of the selling of or utilising of fossil fuel and moving toward different energy support and so what they after the um, the mine fire they very quickly pulled the plug on the mine and it, it happened really quickly they just announced that um, they were closing down production so people just lost their jobs as well then pretty much it happened uh, I think over about a nine month period which is not very long you know to you know for something that had been in an industry that had been in place since 1949 what's that 50 years over 50 years it had a devastating effect on the people who are living there so there's this environmental effect 
effect. And then there's this sort of livelihood effect because of this company that's trying to sort of, they were forced into really reckoning with climate change and their contribution, let's say, to the climate crisis. And so this sort of experience basically sparked in you sort of this urge to look at how mining is working across Australia and trying to understand some of these larger dynamics at play. So where did you end up going? Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly what happened. Well, actually, what I did was I thought I'm going to take a sample of different mining communities that were mining different products. And it was one of those things that was a, a decision I made within about two minutes. I sat down with a um, an atlas map and uh, I went, um, okay, Broken Hill, that's uh, silver and lead and uh, yeah, it was iron ore. Roxby Downs, uranium and other you know, other products as well. Argyle, the Argyle Diamond Mine and um, another place, Mount Whaleback in Western Australia was iron ore, very big iron ore producer, and Kalgoorlie, a gold-producing place. So I had a sample of different outlets, I suppose, that, yeah, places that were vested in different types of extraction or extracting different types of material. Different material, different communities, different parts of the massive continent of Australia, basically. Originally, I was wanting to take a sample from the entire country, but effectively what it ended up was um, to the, the western half. Um, Broken Hill was in New South Wales, right on the on the edge of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, into South Australia, uh, Roxby Downs. Up through the north, there were none in the Northern Territory, but uh, right up to the very northwest part of Western Australia, to the Argyle Diamond Mine. And then um, iron ore, major iron ore, massive iron ore production at uh, a place called Newman, Mount Whaleback in Western Australia, and then down to uh, Kalgoorlie, once again in Western Australia. So there were three sites in Western Australia. Wow. I mean, so it sounds like a massive journey, so to speak. I think you said something like you, you traveled 12,000 kilometers by car. Yes, I did. And that turned out to be significant. Huge spaces in between. Driving from uh, through those, uh, I effectively felt by the by the time I got right up into the um, into the far northwest part of the uh, of the continent, uh, I was in the opposite part at side of the continent to um, to where I come from down in Morwell, the, the southeast part of the continent. So I, I felt as if I'd gone into a different world. It is the Kimberley area of Western Australia really does feel like it's a another country. So in what ways was it different from where you grew up? Well, climatically to begin with, and therefore the landscape is very different. But um, also it's a, it's a different culture. Like in Western Australia, the Kimberley is a long way. It's thousands of kilometres from the capital of the state, which is Perth, down on the west coast more toward the south we're talking about a 3,000 kilometer distance it's a very big state and so people right up there felt as if they lived literally in a different subculture for the want of a better term in a different culture and were administered by bureaucrats far far away and I, I certainly had a couple of discussions with people in uh, in a couple of those mining locations with a deep antagonism about the people in these uh, the sort of political center of the state having control over their lives when they didn't know very much about you know, what was going on so far away i didn't have to scratch very hard to unearth that sort of um uh, deep antagonism or maybe maybe that's uh, putting it too bluntly um attention might be a better way of expressing it sure sure and but within these different communities did they have a different relationship to mining or was that something that was more common 
It was different in terms of, I suppose, the role that the companies, the big companies play. And I guess I felt that most sharply at uh, Mount Whaleback, and it, that's the mine, and the um, the town is Newman. Now, that was set up specifically to, the town was established to support the mine. So effectively, mm. there, there wasn't a town there. It was built as a purpose-built town. And so there were miners came in, administration people came in, and um, of course there was a, a small indigenous population there that had been there for eons, thousands of years. And so what you had is a town that was sort of um, pulled in different directions. The company BHP Broken Hill constantly try searching for the bottom line, making profit. And so the introduction of sort of labour-saving devices and and rationalisation in the workforce was one tension. You had local authorities housing of pe- people. Who look after the, I suppose, the welfare and the and, and the sort of the running of the town concerned about suddenly empty houses as the, the workforce became rationalised and then trying to attract people and part of what I found there was the um, the effort to make it a, a bit of a tourist site and I, I guess I was an example of that you know people attracted by the mines and uh, you know I was one of a group you know we did a mining tour and that the mining tours are, is part of the whole tourist ethic of the place but the other tension I didn't re- it took me a long time to get a handle on was that there was also pressure to bring the local indigenous population who had a small community on the edge of the town to bring them into the town to fill some of these empty houses and that was resisted by the uh, the indigenous people themselves and there was a very good reason for that their little community was a center of a number of indigenous groups that um, it was a meeting place a, a key meeting place and had been for a very long time and um, it's had its own sort of subculture subcultural it's cultural pulse that, that wasn't I didn't understand it until I, you know I was able to step away and, and research it and, and realize that there was a whole other dynamic going on it was part of a, a really complex long history of the movement of people through that area that was seen to me to be not understood and certainly not acknowledged and recognized by uh, the local bureaucrats so you had all these different tensions in a town being in different ways by your different forces it's quite interesting to think about the sort of indigenous communities and their relationship to these mining companies and these mining towns, which are, as you've said, so important to the Australian sort of a political economy, really. So, you know, I'd like to dig a bit more into that, uh, you know, pardon the pun, about the, you know, just the relationships between some of these indigenous communities that you probably came across while you were looking at these mines. Like, did they feel animosity towards these mines and these companies for, you know, taking their land, exploiting their land, sometimes I would imagine Rio Tinto and BHP use some pretty terrible methods to get to the mines, like, you know, using explosives or clear topping mountains. So, you know, was there animosity that you saw from these indigenous communities towards the mining town, the mining community, the, the mine itself? I couldn't say that I saw that directly because, to be really blunt about this, I didn't have and I didn't know how to to get access to these um, indigenous mining, uh, uh, indigenous communities. And I certainly wasn't, um, well, I, I guess it wasn't part, it certainly wasn't part of my mindset when I set out originally. But by the time I'd finished this uh, study and, and leaving Kalgoorlie, the last place I studied, and, you know, sort of a several days drive home, I had plenty of time to think, when I get back to Morwell, or when I get back to Victoria, I'm going to find out more about the indigenous people that existed 
in and around Morwell that I had never given inkling, <clears throat> not a moment's thought to. It was sort of, you know, out of sight, out of totally out of mind. And so what did you learn once you started digging into it? And in that part of the world where I was, that was forcing me to to come to terms with this, it was very much an active dynamic and probably most apparent in Newman, uh, the, you know, the one I was just talking about. But I had not considered that, that element at all up to that point. So there was a the work by a young person who'd done a, done a study of the indigenous populations of, of Gippsland, Don Watson. That was the first book I read when I was aware of the book, but I, I hadn't read it and I realised that there would be clues about what I was searching for. And it was the first book I looked at, I referenced when I got back and started to, uh, to reconsider the whole indigenous issue, that question, that element. And it emerged, that's probably for me, is the, the biggest insight of this study, that uh, whole question of land ownership, land rights, the cultural chasm that exists between we colonials, the colonial heritage, you know, people who are of the colonial heritage, and the traditional owners. That is a gulf, a gap, that is still to be bridged. I would also add that it's also the gap between the traditional owners of the land and and the now global capitalist elite that own these mines, like you were saying earlier, the people sitting in France who own this mine, they probably had absolutely no conception of the traditional owners of the land and indigenous ways of being and knowing. You're right, and I'm going to give one example, and this happened subsequent to my uh, to my trip. But in the Pilbara area of Western Australia several years ago, a sacred site, an indigenous shelter, was blown up in the search for... Um, a return of ore by Rio Tinto. It became an international event and um, international issue, probably to the shock and horror of um, Rio Tinto as a company because so- suddenly their insensitivity or, or the sort of the brutality of that pra- mainstream practices you know, was put on the agenda in a global sense and, uh, you know, for a major you know, international corporation, incredibly bad publicity. But they were held to account. I think their CEO, CEO at the time, he resigned and uh, he was probably bought off. But um, I, I suspect um, he, he would have been encouraged probably to step aside. His departure was, was one of the ways in which the, um, you know, I suppose the company owned up and, and said, okay, we've got it wrong and uh, someone's going to pay and it's going to be this person. I still wonder, you know, the importance of mining in Australia, as you've said, is just so profound and so deeply connected to the body politic. And as you said, an ideology, it's sort of this mindset. It's part of the national identity that, it, you know, what makes Australia great is part of this mining, mining culture. But, you know, by titling your book, The Dirty Life of Mining, you sort of, you realize that it's, there's all these, of course, climate problems, but there's a lot of sort of social and cultural problems built into the whole mining industry, one being indigenous, another being this issue of labor and and some of these sort of terrible cost-cutting measures from privatization, etc. And it just makes me wonder, is mining going to just continue on in Australia? It's had such a long history. Is this something that is just going to continue on even if we recognize how dirty a life mining has? Or do you see some sort of changes underway where the reliance on mining or the mining practices are going to change to start recognizing climate change, start recognizing the traditional owners of the land, and maybe more than that? What's your takeaway in the end from this research? 
I think we're on the edge of a new mining boom, and it's, it's to do with the search for um, critical minerals, lithium being the main one. And uh, I would say that it will be significant, and um, because now the sort of the um, the whole climate change crisis is a global issue, and the press to come on board with that is there at a sort of at a corporate level. And uh, I suppose just by one example, some of the mega companies are now sort of turning their attention to the search for lithium and um, uh, securing lithium deposits as being you know, right. So to be put to place themselves on the on the cutting edge of this new search for or the boom associated with clean green energy production I, I could see that you know there's there's lots of potential particularly in western australia there seem to be a number of different sites in which the uh, critical minerals are present and you know there's a sort of that scramble road to secure access to those places now so i think we're just looking at the next phase of the long history uh, of mm. mining in this country and so what sort of questions pop up from your study then for sort of future research, let's say? Probably the tensions that, that certainly exist around land rights. And what happened at the Yukon shelter with Rio Tinto is probably a marker of that. There will have to be a lot of attention paid to getting the access, securing access, and also communicating well with the traditional owners of the different areas. Mm -hmm. I do see that as one issue. Having said that, the example, I'll go back to what happened in the Morwell, closing down of the Morwell mine. These companies, sort of with their headquarters in uh, London, for example, BHP and um, Rio Tinto, there's a big gap, a massive gap between um, bureaucrats sitting in a sort of a, around a board table or boardrooms um, so far away, concerned about their bottom line and how they come to understand, you know, the life and you know, sort of dynamics of small mining communities, you know, this mm. country. They're really dependent on effective communication with the local managers and uh, people who are representing, I suppose, it's, it becomes a public relations issue. And I think that probably some like the, the issue with the, um, the the destruction of the shelter by Rio Tinto would suggest to me that there'll probably be a heck of a lot more attention paid to getting a public relations correct getting it right and um there's certainly a lot of scope for also getting it wrong probably you know because of uh you know the sort of nature of um you've got people who are managers who are under pressure to make savings on the spot decisions that they will make and you know the sort of the, the judgments that they make under pressure you know to produce a um uh, a profit it seems to me that it's just built into the the whole system of uh extended capitalism and the mistakes and become part of the process of um okay we accept that mistakes will happen we'll learn from them we'll we'll deal with them we'll come up with methods for um for avoiding them but there'll be inevitably there will be different types of mistakes so i think that um what i would envisage will be this sort of ebbing and flowing as new searches new types of minerals that uh, are being mined you know different vested interests you know sort of uh, yeah, come online but we're talking about a system that is truly global and the inevitable gap between the global and the local i, I think is set up for um, contradictions of different types. Well, Lindsay Fitzclarence, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your new book. And yeah, it was just really wonderful to talk and get more learning on my introduction into Australia. Thank you for the opportunity to talk, uh, Will. 
Lindsay Fitzclarence is an honorary professor at Deakin University. His new book is The Dirty Life of Mining in Australia. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Oktas, Obafemi Ungunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.